Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, I had intended to tell you all about Eve, but uh, I will a little at the end. Uh, I was asked to say something about my background. Um, I think I owe a lot to my pushy mother, who assured me that anything is possible, that one can do anything you want. Um, now that was far away from here, that was in New Zealand, I was a farm boy. Um, what I wanted to do was uh, be a better farmer than my dad, and uh, I thought the way to do that was to visit the local agricultural experiment station and talk to the director about what he would recommend if I went to the university. And he said, don't do veterinary medicine, study biochemistry. Biochemistry is what we need. Well, he was a distinguished man and uh, very successful. Uh, so I went off to the university and studied biochemistry. Um, at the same time, I had been intrigued by the fact, growingly, that in, in New Zealand, as in some places here, um, the subject of evolution wasn't taught at the high school I went to. I found out about it by reading in a library. I became intrigued. And when I started 1952-53 at the university in New Zealand, this was the, the time when the structure of DNA, the genetic material, had just been uh, worked out. It was a very interesting time to think of that a chemical study of genes could be made and begin to look at the basis for evolution. The genetic basis of evolution would reside in the changes that genes undergo. So I thought I should study biology at the same time as biochemistry. And when I learned biology, I could see that the biologists were afraid of biochemistry. And the biochemists didn't think of how to study evolution. It's, it became evident to me that there was a big vacuum in science, that, that the study of this process, this process of evolution, which started out very slow, but is now going extremely quickly in the form of cultural evolution, and I would say it's now the dominant biological process impinging on the planet, here was this great opportunity that one could sense to do comparative studies of the genetic material using the tools of biochemistry to address questions that evolutionists had been trying to answer. How does evolution work? Um, so it just seemed sort of natural to graduate, or to, to, to go into uh, this vacuum and to, to fill it. And I received encouragement when an American visiting professor came to my undergraduate school in New Zealand and encouraged me to go in this direction, um, said, you can get paid to go to graduate school if you come with me back to Washington State and Pullman. That's where I went, all the time with the plan in mind of, of studying biochemistry of the genes in a comparative way aimed at trying to quantitatively study the evolutionary process. And very soon, I got that opportunity at Berkeley, and then later at Brandeis University, where I was a postdoctoral fellow, and quickly ran into a phenomenon that nobody predicted, the phenomenon of the molecular clock. So 
these genes that contain the instruction for making human bodies or animal bodies, the hereditary material undergoes mutation. And some of these mutations are bad. They can cause genetic diseases. But there's a huge class of mutations that are innocuous. They don't perturb the system. Darwin couldn't have known about them, the so-called neutral mutations. And these accumulate over time in a remarkably steady way, so much so that if you compare the genes of two different species or two different individuals, you can make an estimate of how long ago they had a common ancestor. This was a, a pretty revolutionary business to be getting into so quickly. This emerged in the early 1960s as a result of work that we and others were doing at that time. The idea that you didn't have to dig for fossils anymore, just by comparing the genes of present-day creatures, you could tell how long ago they had common ancestors. So that was in the early 1960s that that, that idea came up. And it met with very strong resistance from the people in the field of evolutionary biology. They were very opposed to this and used the powerful means at their disposal. This is a bit of a conspiracy theory I have, I guess. That, I mean, the older people in a field have great power to deny funds to young investigators if they feel that they're going in a direction um, that's uh, wrong, um, that um, doesn't share some basic assumptions with them. And so this field struggled to come into existence for 20 years. I think partly because we first used this approach, the molecular clock approach, to find out when apes and humans had a common ancestor. And that turned out to be a very different time from the time that we were told by the, the high priests, as it were, of the, uh, the field. In fact, the New York Times and other prestigious papers and magazines were in the habit of giving prizes in the form of um, headlines uh, to anyone who found a fossil that was supposedly indicating that the human lineage was put, pushed back yet another million years, comfortably far back, so that our connection with those beasts was uh, a long way off. But the molecular dating said it was very recent. And um, so there was a lot of flack about that. I think it was lucky that I was in a biochemistry department and not in an anthropology department where I couldn't be got at in the sense of denial of funds because the funding sources were different. Anyway, that's how I got into the matter of, of Eve. First, we were able to look at the relatedness of ourselves to other creatures and come to a much more quantitative, objective, measure of that relatedness and the time. And it took 20 years before the fossil record was reinterpreted, and it now fits, as I thought it did all along, with the molecular picture. But then more recently, as methods got more powerful, it became possible to look within our own species, to look at the roots. And I have a few slides I was going to show, if time permits, um, just very briefly 
to uh, help you to think about the Eve concept. And I think if I can work this right, um, I would show you that there have been multiple ideas <coughs> about, <laughs> about when and where Eve uh, existed, where she came from. That's one view that has been held by certain scientists um, at a university whose name I don't recall now, but uh, <laughs> um, but this is the view that has uh, come about the idea of an African origin for all of us uh, as the result of studying a molecule that has a peculiar type of inheritance. Most of the genes in our bodies are in the nucleus of, of each cell, and uh, we have about 100,000 of those genes. They account for most of our uh, characteristics. But there are 37 genes in another small compartment of the cell. And these genes are inherited only from the mother. These maternally inherited genes are of great interest to genealogists. And I don't know if I have a slide to uh, that's just to depict the idea of the African origin, but um, this is probably more complicated than you want to look at, but that's a pedigree showing at the top a son, and the only reason I've picked a son is that a son has three letters and a daughter has many, um, and slides should always go for simplicity. That shows you a five-generation pedigree. So if you look back into your past, whether you're a son or a daughter, you trace back to 32 ancestors five generations ago, if you're thinking about your nuclear genes. But if you follow that turquoise line, that's the pedigree for this maternally inherited DNA, the mitochondrial DNA. It's very simple. It's not blurred by matings. Female lineages don't come together at the time of reproduction. So the genealogy is very simple. You trace back to one mother, to one grandmother, to one great-great-grandmother, and so on. And from measuring the relatedness of this molecule from different human individuals, we can tell when they had common ancestors, and we can build a big genealogical tree that has all of us on it, all of the people that have been tested. And it's that tree that shows us that um, that the, the, all the deep branches in the tree are African, and the non-African lineages are all twigs on those branches. So we're very much products of Africa. I'll skip over that and leave you with this last diagram, because I think one of the most controversial things about the proposal that all of the maternal lineages in our species trace back to one and only one mother is one that's been very puzzling to scientists and laymen alike. And this diagram, it's the last, I think it's the last slide, um, maybe I have one more, um, is an attempt to get you to come to grips with that, and maybe it's too complicated. But if you um, look at the bottom part of that, and for most of you, you won't be able to see it very well, there are 15, this is an imaginary population of mothers. And at the bottom is the population of founding mothers, and there are 15 of them. And the one that's indicated by the heavy line, the thick black line, mother number six, is the one that by accident turned out to be the mother 
of all of the descendants 15 generations later. So at the top of the slide, you see 15 black lineages, and they all trace back to that one lucky mother. The process that's shown there is a process of random extinction, that in each generation in this imaginary population, mothers are allowed to have, on average, one offspring, one female offspring. We're not worrying about the males in this case. We're just looking at, at, the, at the female lineages. Each mother, on average, has one offspring, so the population doesn't grow, nor does it decline. But by chance, some mothers will have two or even three females, and some will have none. So some lineages go extinct in each generation. So you keep losing lineages in any population, and as they are lost, others proliferate at their expense, and slowly, purely by chance, one of the lineages will come to predominate over all the others. All of the others will get lost. This will happen in any population of any size. It just takes longer in big populations. So we can look down from the top back to the roots of our gene pool, and all of the lineages will necessarily intersect at some time in one mother. And the molecular biology offers us a way of calculating when she lived, and by looking at the structure of the tree, um, uh, where she lived. And the final thing I wanted to leave you with is this picture here, and I'm afraid it doesn't show up very well, but one of the big criticisms of our field is that we've always reasoned backwards. <laughs> we um, are dealing with contemporary lineages, and we try to build, reconstruct the past. The fossil workers have an advantage over us in that they can look at bones. But it was always thought that the DNA had disappeared. And slowly, we're beginning to recognize that it didn't. Here's a brain from Florida. It's covered in peat. It's from a peat bog 12 feet down. Uh, it's not Dr. Ballinger's brain. It's, uh, it's, it's Dr. Ballinger's hands holding this brain covered by peat. And you can see the furrows in the brain. It's a very spectacular picture, I think. There are thousands of these in Florida, um, thousands of these old brains lying uh, there. And they're the only soft tissue that survives. No skin, no hair, no uh, muscle, no other soft parts, only the brain. So you have the skeleton, and about half of the skulls have the brains like this, and they have DNA. So it's an amazing kind of preservation permitted by the fact that the peat bogs in Florida are on a limestone base, and so they're at neutral pH, and um, the brain is complex enough in its chemistry that bacteria can't degrade it very well under those conditions. So it's a sanctuary for the preservation of DNA, and we can begin to check up on our hypotheses now, these reconstructions we've done by working back from the present can, we can now work back through the past by working with such materials. So we're on the trail now um, to look at more and more ancient materials, and our hopes are to be able to look at Neanderthals and so on. Thank you for this opportunity. What do you think that the students that enter the field of biochemistry now will be working on in a couple decades from now? What do you think the main question will be then? I think it's probably not to go good to ask somebody who's old. 
<laughs> I think it's the young people who will sense the vacuum, so the vacuum. Um, my guess is that biochemistry will be much more wrapped up with genetics and the nervous system than um, it is now because of this plan to sequence the whole human genome. So there's great enthusiasm for this now and I think that our insights into human nature are going to become very much deeper as a result of this. So my guess is that the area of human genetics is going to be the one that expands and that biochemistry uh, will be expanding uh, with that. How do fundamentalist Christians respond to uh, your findings in evolution? I haven't um, had much contact. I, I think <laughs> um, I've heard that, that some uh, fundamentalists view this as a vindication of the uh, biblical story of Eve, um, while others are in doubt about that because the time is so different, 200,000 years compared with just a few thousand years. But my feeling is that probably there's some split there. What undergraduate major would you recommend if the goal was to wind up in genetics research? I would say don't study genetics. <laughs> okay. um, I think it's better to do something more fundamental um, and to invade a science uh, from a more fundamental aspect. I think that's, at least, I think that uh, epitomizes the kind of thing that I've been doing, is to be invading other fields using the tools of, of a science that's more basic than that one. And so my recommendation would be that molecular biology or biochemistry is fundamental now to genetics. The genetic material can be studied as chemical material, and uh, so uh, one has multiple opportunities for coming into this field. One through the traditional departments of genetics, which can be a good way, but uh, I think a superior way is to come through biochemistry and molecular biology.